the book of John, chapter 4. The book of John, chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 1 to verse 26. book of John chapter 4. When you got it, say so. Now where the Lord reads like this, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this, get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you have spoken truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Lord, we thank you so much for your truth. We thank you for your word, Lord God, that is inspired. And we thank you today, Lord God, that we have the privilege and the opportunity to come before your glorious and wonderful presence. Help us, God, to continually recognize the gift that is you. Help us to continuously acknowledge the gift that is our salvation in you, God. Father, today I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds. Speak to us, God. 
We give you all praise and all glory. In Jesus' name, someone said, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. For most of us, maybe not all of this passage, but some of this passage is familiar. Probably heard worshipers should worship in spirit and truth. Maybe you've heard of the story of the woman at the well or whatever the case may be. But in line with our gospel-centered messages, we've been talking about being gospel-centered. This is the third message in this series. And we dealt with understanding that the gospel must be first and foremost in our life at all times. The gospel must take center stage. It must take center position. It must be our focus at all times. That's what the gospel should be. We understood last week, I hope you understood, as I tried to share as clearly as possible, that our identity must be centered in the gospel. Who we are is not based on what we do, what we have done, is not based upon who we know or who we will know. Our identity is about Jesus, plain and simple, period. That is who our identity is. It is Christ. Therefore, everything that we do should be because of that. In this particular portion of scripture, we find here a story, and as John the Apostle, he speaks and he he communicates to us how Jesus went from one place and he moved into the next, and as he moves into this next place, he has to make a stop in a place called Samaria. And it's amazing because when you read the story, you realize that John is the one who's writing this, and he is writing this after the fact. And so, obviously, John got a revelation and an understanding that Jesus needed to go to this place. When you look at it, there can be two reasons, or there can be two ways you can see this. You can see it as just a natural reason. Jesus had to go through Samaria, and the reason for that is because it was a shorter distance. It was easier to go from where he was to where he was going to cut through Samaria. You can look at it from that perspective. You can also look at it from the perspective of that it was traditional that during this season that the Jewish people would go through Samaria even though they didn't normally go through there. You can look at it from those two perspectives, and you can also understand that if either one of those perspectives is the right reason why Jesus needed to go through Samaria, there was a greater reason, and it was called the divine appointment. Amen. There was a greater reason why Jesus needed to go through Samaria, and it is because there was this woman at the well, but it wasn't just for this woman at the well. It is for us who would read about this woman at the well. He needed to go through Samaria so he could have this conversation. This is the only time that I know of where Jesus is speaking specifically about worship within the Gospels where he is talking about this. And he needed to go through there so he could have this conversation with her so he could deal with her life. And by dealing with her life, he would also deal with our worship. He goes through Samaria, he goes, he meets this woman at the well, and as this woman at the well is there, they begin to have this conversation, and Jesus, if you look down in your Bibles, we just read a little bit together here, in verse 9 it says, when the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, and Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, I want to encourage you, you know, sometimes we wonder and, and, and we hear people talk to us, because you know, we, we know that people speak to us about Jesus, and you may be a person in here that doesn't know him. You may be a person in here that doesn't know Jesus. You haven't made a commitment to Jesus. You are not walking with Jesus. And you wonder, why do these people continue to talk to me about Jesus? That may be something that is on your mind. And I want you to get this. She didn't realize what was the big deal of who the person was she was talking to. She didn't realize the gift of God. If she would have realized the gift of God, she would have said, hey, you know what? I, no, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give you a drink. I need a drink from you. Hello. That's what would have happened. 
And so don't miss the gift of God. Don't, don't miss what God is trying to communicate to you and offer to you. And so they go through the conversation. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who, is, who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's amazing because that's how we come. We hear about Jesus and we're so much thinking that he is trying to take something from us when at all times he's trying to give something to us. We wonder, why is it that I need to lay my life down? Why is it that I need to give up certain things? Why is it that I need to say no to stuff? I remember being incarcerated as a teenager, and I was in, in, and I, I was in the detention center, and I remember, you know, the, the, the Baptist church that was around there, they used to come out and they would minister. And, you know, when you're incarcerated, you never went to church when you were outside, but when you go inside, you go to church every opportunity. I'm just speaking from experience. I wouldn't walk into a church. I, I, I wasn't excited about church. Incarcerated church, sign me up. Hello. I got to be there. Why? Because, man, I'm tired of sitting in this area around all these guys. I need to get a fresh face in front of me. Hello. I need to do It isn't because I was looking for God. I remember sitting down with this lady, and she sat there in front of me. And as she communicated with me, she asked me all these questions. She was like, you know, so what do you know about this? And mind you, I, ra- you know, I was a royal ranger, raised up in church. I knew a few Bible stories, and I knew a couple of things. And I knew one thing for certain. I knew that I couldn't have God and the lifestyle I was living. That's what I knew for sure. I knew that I could not have both. I could not have both worlds. I knew that for certain. I knew that there was something called a hypocrite, and I knew that I wasn't ready to let go of the world. And so we sat down there, and we had this conversation, and she's talking to me, and I'm telling her, you know, she's like, so, you know, you know all of this stuff about God, so what is keeping you from, you know, giving your life to Jesus? And I said, well, I want to, you know, I want to do certain things. I want to continue to sin. I want to continue to act inappropriately. And, and, and you know, I, y'all can just put, you know, two and two together of all of those crazy things I was doing, right? And she was like, well, you know, here's the most important thing. She said, you just need to accept Jesus and let him work on your life. And I'm like, okay. So I'm going to come to church next time we have church. I'm going to pray, give my life to Jesus, right? I wasn't sincere in what I was saying. I, I, I prayed a prayer with her. I wasn't ready to lay my life down. I wasn't ready to walk with him. But here's the thing that I didn't get. I didn't get it then. I got it years later. I didn't understand at that time that in reality, Jesus was there. And if I would have understood the gift, I would have given him what he was asking for. If I would have understood the gift because he was not trying to take something from me. And listen, I don't want you to get it twisted because I am not and will never be one of those preachers that is saying that God is trying to give you just a great life. That is not true. That is not what I'm trying to say to you. What I'm trying to communicate is that God is trying to give you real life. God is trying to give you abundant life. He is trying to give you a life that doesn't depend on the exterior, doesn't depend upon surroundings, it doesn't depend on anything, but it depends upon the life that is in you that he gives. That's what he's trying to give. And see, the thing is this, that we try to get our surroundings the right way so that way we can experience something on the inside. Oh my goodness. We try to get around the right people, you know, you want to find your soulmate. For those of us that are single, we know what that is. Those of us that are married, we already found it. Glory to God. I hope. Oh, why? Because I need to be completed. Oh, Jesus. Listen to me. We want to get around the right people. We want to connect so we can have some. But wait a second. Jesus says everything around you is not going to change what's inside of you, but I can. 
You can drink from whatever fountain you want to drink in this world because that's what it all is. That's what it's all the equivalent of. We drink of different fountains. Some of us, are, you know, our fountain is drugs. Our fountain is alcohol. Our fountain is sex. Our fountain is fornication. Our fountain is immorality. We drink from these different fountains. Our fountain is clubbing. Our fountain is pornography. Our fountain are these different things. And what we are trying to do is we are trying to feel them. Our fountain is success. Hello, somebody. Because right away we think, well, that's all negative stuff. But can success be the fountain that you're drinking of and drinking of and drinking of? Because you're trying to satisfy some void that is there. That in truth, the only one who can satisfy that is Jesus with real life. And you won't have to keep going to that fountain and this fountain and that person and that place and doing this thing and that thing to fill something inside of you. No, because you will be overflowing and then you will be able to be a vessel of that real life unto all of those people that are drinking at those fountains. That is what God wants to do. Jesus has this encounter, or should I say, this woman has this encounter with Jesus. She encounters him, and he begins to tell her, man, you're missing the gift of God. So they go on to this whole dialogue and this conversation, and so she goes on ahead, and she asks him. She says, well, you know, I want that, I, I want that water so I don't have to come to this well anymore. And I want you to understand something about this woman. She didn't care much. She didn't even get the conversation they were having. She didn't understand it. She missed the whole thing. That's why Jesus had to bring her husband into the whole picture. Listen to me. She was missing it. Jesus was like, listen, I want to give you some real water. She's like, okay, give me some real water because I don't want to come here anymore. You know why? Here, I'm, let, me, let me explain to you why. The reason why she didn't want to come there anymore is because she's had five husbands. She's on number six. When it says five husbands, what he's doing, he's being polite, saying, you have been a hoochie. Yes, he said hoochie from the pulpit. Yes, he did. That was a polite way, because when you come together, you, 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 you unite, right? You, come, you become one flesh. And so he's saying, listen, you've been shacking up. Five dudes. And so here's what happens. The time of the day, when you look at the time of the day, about the sixth hour, so what does that mean? we got to do the time frame, right? So what is the sixth hour? Well, from 6 o'clock in the morning to 12 o'clock. Everybody, you read your Bible and you go through history, at 12 o'clock, there is nobody in their right mind doing anything. Unless they absolutely have to. Hello. Isn't that true? If you work outside, you don't want to do anything at 12 o'clock. During that hour, two, three hours, you don't want to, do, you, you want to be in the shade somewhere. You know what they did with the sheep during that time? They had them in the shade, resting. They waited, and here's what they did. They either came early in the morning to get their water, or they came later in the, in, in the evening to get their water. Nobody came during the day. That's why she was there. She didn't want to encounter anybody. She didn't want anybody looking at her funny like, oh, I don't want you to be near me because now that water's contaminated because you've been here. Hello. Y'all remember when you were in little, you know, and you were in elementary school and you didn't like girls or boys. You were just a boy, just all oh, girls were nasty guys. And then, you know, you grew up and something happened. Hello. Remember they had the cooties? Hello. Oh, girls are gross. Uh -huh. Okay, praise the Lord. Keep them gross. Boys are, oh, yuck. Great. Glory to God. I'm a daddy of a girl. I want them to be yuck forever. No, I'm just kidding. At some point, I will want them to be okay, because I'm sure I'll be like, all right, baby, I love you. Go with Jesus and your husband. For right now, we're good, though, right? But this was the issue. They did not want, she didn't want anybody to see her, because she dealt with that. She probably slept with five different people's husband. Hello? So everybody knew, oh, she's the one. So she's like, you know what? If I can get some water and I ain't got to draw no more, give me that water, please. 
I will stay home and be drinking all day. I want that water. She missed the whole thing. Jesus brings the husband into the whole picture, says, hey, bring your husband. She's like, I have a husband. He said, oh, you said truth there. You've had five. The one you have now is not yours. You spoke truly. It's funny because he says you spoke truly like everything else wasn't really real. So you look, 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 look at Jesus in his conversation. And that you spoke truly. It's like everything else she was saying. It was like, she was like fishing. It was all about her. And finally he gets to the truth. Finally, he gets to the, that's what happens with us. Sometimes we're talking to people about Jesus. They give us 901, they're called smoke screens. Hello. 900 reasons why I don't want to give my life to Jesus. 900 reasons why I can't do it. The reality is, it's just a bunch of excuses. And if you talk long enough and you get to the right point, you will get to the truth. And so Jesus finally gets to the truth in the conversation. The truth of the conversation is she has an issue. She has a void. Why has she been with five different men? Is it because she wants to be like that? Listen, I want to let you know, there is nobody who wants to be like that. There is nobody who wants to live like that. There is something lacking in their life. And you want to know what the issue is? The issue is this. It is called a sin nature. A sin nature that is trying to heal itself with different things, different avenues, and it will never be healed until you meet the one who gives you life, the one who gives you rivers of living water that flow from you into eternal life because he is the source. That's the fact. Jesus has the conversation. And then they go from there, and she goes on. I love her response in verse 15. Look at it. He says, the woman said to him, sir, give me water. I'm sorry. Give me water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said, you have well said. I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband in that you spoke truly. Verse 19 says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. That's the verse I meant to get to. I perceive you. You know what she was saying? She was saying, woo, you got my number and you just read my mail. You don't know me from nowhere. You a Jew, so I definitely know you ain't been talking to nobody in this town. Hello. Wasn't like you went to my cousin's house and they told you, hey, she's crazy. Wasn't like that. I perceive you're a prophet. I perceive that you are one who has the mouthpiece of God. You are one who is speaking forth the word of God. You're one that sees things that nobody is telling them. And then she goes on to ask him a question. So she switches the conversation. She gets away from herself and she says, well, let's talk about worship. Which goes to show that there was something that she needed. It goes to show that there was something that was lacking. It goes to show that even though she was sleeping with, you know, Tom, Dick, Harry, Joe, and everybody else, right? Even though she was doing that, she still wanted worship because she knew that there was something that came out of worship. She knew that. She was, it's a, when, you, when you think about it, it almost makes no sense that this woman that is like that doing those kind of things would still care about worship. And she didn't just care about worship. She knew the laws of worship. She's like, you Jews, you say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. But we Samaritans, we worship here, which is right. Goes on and she has the conversation. And this brings us to the, to the message, gospel-centered worship. Here's the thing I want you to realize is that we were all created to worship. Everybody in this place created to worship. And I'll go even further. Every one of you in here worships. Every one of us that is in this place worships. The question is not, do we know how to worship? The question is, where and upon whom is our worship focused? Everybody worships. No matter what. 
You don't know Jesus, you're still worshiping something. You may worship yourself. You may worship your significant other. You may worship your children. You may worship your job. How could it be possible to worship your job? Listen, when you give all of your devotion, all of your devotion to that, maybe you're not worshiping your job. Maybe you're worshiping money. We talked about that God last week when I began to deal with tithes and offerings. We talked about the reason why I get so sensitive whenever someone starts talking about money because a lot of people, they don't want to admit it, but really their God is money. And so you get offended when someone starts talking about your pocket because it's your money. No, it's not. Hello? We don't want to hear that stuff. But everybody worships. Everybody worships. Everyone. Some of us are great at it. Some of us are better at it than others. Some of us really know. We, we, we really know how to worship stuff. You know, like some of us worship our cars. Hello, somebody. My car, I don't worship my car. My car hates me. Hello. But some of us, boy, we, we wash our car two, three times a week. Mm-hmm. Just clean car, right? Can't make it to church more than twice a month, but wash the car three times a week. Mm-hmm. We worship stuff. It's called idolatry. We have idols in our lives, and we worship these things. But why is it? Because God created us with that. And you know what happens when we're worshiping that? This is what happens when we worship our car. Why is it that we do that? I'll just use the car as an example. Why is it that it's such a big deal? Because when we're finished doing it, there's a satisfaction that comes. There is a level of satisfaction when you have worshiped. There is when things turn out good. Now, when you worship your car, you wash your car and it rains, satisfaction gone. Why? Man, I just worked so hard cleaning that car. Now it's going to rain. Hello? It's factual. So what are we worshiping? We got to ask ourselves that question. The gospel-centered worship, it comes out of our identity that we have found in Christ. And what, and what happens is, I want you to get this, worship is not us. If you get anything out of this message, I pray that you will get this. Worship is not us trying to get a response from God or trying to get things from God, but it is us responding to God in ways that bring him honor and glory and reflect his character. Some of us use our worship as some level of manipulation. And what I mean is, when we talk about worship in its fullness, it's not just about what we just did here. That's not it. A lot of us, we think, oh, well, that's worship. We come to church and we isolate it. I'm going to talk about this in a little bit. But we isolate our worship to this is something that we do. Worship becomes an event. It becomes an activity. It becomes something that happens. It's something on the calendar, something on the time clock. That's not what worship is supposed to be. And so we come and we say, man, I'm going to get my breakthrough today. How am I going to do that? I'm going to worship God until he breaks through and touches me. Hello? And so we come into church. I love this. It is so quiet today. Praise him. We come into church and we're like, man, I, just, I, I, I need to feel God. Really? I love, I love when I youth pastor. You know, I, I mean, I love pastoring in any way you put it. But youth pastor, I used to tell the young people, I'd be like, man, you talking about, you know, you, you don't feel God? I would ask them, does God feel you? I don't feel God. It doesn't matter what you feel. Jesus died on the cross. He wasn't feeling that. Hello? 
What he was feeling was your sin. Hello. That's what he was feeling. He, he continued it. The joy set before him. Our salvation. Praise the Lord. But he wasn't feeling that. Look at the garden of Gethsemane. He prayed three times. God, please take this father. He prayed that. I want to come. I want to feel God. You leave church, didn't feel God. Something was wrong. Really? Something was wrong with who? With who? Was there something wrong with you? I'm not saying there's something wrong with you. I'm going to tell you right now. There's plenty of times I go into my prayer closet with the Lord and I don't feel God. Hello? I don't have this overwhelming Shekinah glory experience every time I get down to pray. Every time that we come into worship. Listen, here's the thing you got to get. And this, this is the point. Worship is about giving to God. Worship is about giving to God in response to what God gave. That's what gospel-centered worship is about. I want you to get this. Worship is rooted in being a disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple, in its simplest term, is a follower of Christ. It is one who reflects the image of God by finding their identity in Jesus. We talked about identity. We are image bearers of God. Sin corrupted that image. Jesus comes, redeems us by his blood. Now we can bear that image again. And so we find our identity and who we are in Christ. And then how do we express this? How do we express this identity? How do we express what Christ has done? Well, the first place is through worship. It is through worship unto God. The second thing, we'll talk about this next week, is community with the body of Christ. And it is also expressed in our mission unto the world. And so in basic terms, here's what happens. We talk about something. Pastor Robert said it. You heard him say it a little while ago. We are committed to loving God. What does that have to do with? Worship. It is about loving on God. We're committed to growing together. What is that about? That is about community with my brothers and sisters. We are committed to reaching others. What is that about? Our mission unto the world. That is what it means to be a disciple. Worship is rooted in being a disciple. You can write this down or just keep this in your heart as well. A worshiper is someone who practices living in the presence of God. A worshiper is someone who practices living in the presence of God. It is someone who acknowledges their sinfulness, who acknowledges that they are not righteous, who acknowledges that they are unworthy to be in his presence, but then they accept that great and glorious exchange that Jesus made on the cross, and they realize that they have been invited into the presence of Almighty God, not because of how good they are, not because of how many good things they do, but solely on the basis of what Jesus accomplished for them. Amen. That is a worshiper. It is someone who acknowledges, man, I am horrible apart from Jesus. I am worthless apart from Jesus. I know that's hard, you know, and we talked about that whole, I won't get on that bandwagon again. We talked about the whole self-esteem kick last week. I won't do that. But the bottom line is this, is that we need to recognize that we have nothing good inside of us apart from him. Period. Period. Repeat this after me, please. Gospel-centered worship. Is not a method of getting from God, but giving to God. Too many of us see worship as a way for us to get things from God. And then what happens is our worship becomes hinged upon what God does or what he doesn't do. If God responds to my demands, and, and listen, when I say demands, there's some people who are pretty demanding of God. When they pray, they give God the list of demands. They're not petitioning him, they're demanding of him. They live as though God owes them something. Understand something. God owes us nothing.
Did you hear what I just said? God owes you, he owes me nothing. He gave us everything in Jesus. And it wasn't because he owed it to us. It is because we could not pay the debt ourselves. So what we realize is that we have been called to be people who worship him. But we come to God and, and we have our worship that is based on our demands. So we demand things from God or, you know what, we come humbly and we cry out to him and we beg him, God, do this. And we realize that he's the sovereign. We realize he's the potter. We are the clay. We realize that we're subject to his will. We acknowledge all of those things. And then we come to God and we bring before him whatever it is. And then what happens is if God does not fix it, if God does not make it right, if God does not answer us within our timing or according to the way that we feel, what happens is now our worship is strained. Because worship becomes something, whether we want to admit it or not, it's a way to get from him. It's not about giving to him. Listen, I have something, and I encourage folks. I, you know, I, I was talking to, to, to a couple the other day, and I was sharing. You know, if we all walked in that door, if we all walked in that door every Sunday morning, and I'm going to use this particular time of worship. This is not worship all in and of itself. This is a part of worship. If we all walked in that door on Sunday morning, and we said, man, I'm coming for one reason, and that's to give to God. Can you imagine the glory that we would see in this earth because of that mindset? Because here's the thing, rather than coming to church and, and measuring things by how you felt or what, rather than measuring all of that, I want you to measure one thing when you come to church and it's time to sing, dance, whatever it is you want to do for Jesus. I want you to ask yourself this question. Did I lay everything out there? Did I lay everything out there? Did I give him all of my heart in worship? Did I give him? Because that's the only question that matters. Because the only thing that worship is about, it is about giving to him. Period. If we, come, if we come together with that mindset, you know what we'll do? We'll leave church, bottom line, we'll leave church excited because we know, man, I gave him everything. Or we'll leave church disappointed in me because I didn't give him everything. Did you get that? If I came to church and I said, man, here's the measuring rod. Did I lay everything out before him? Did I pour my love on him with all of my heart? Did I give him every part of my soul? Did I give him every part of my being? Did I pour everything out on him? If we came with that mindset, worship would be a whole different thing. Because first of all, I guarantee you this. You wouldn't care who's up here, who's not up here. You wouldn't care what songs we do, what songs we don't do. You would care none about that stuff. You wouldn't care who's next to you or around you. Because during that time, all about Jesus. All about Jesus. That's what gospel center worship looks like. It's about giving to him. To worship, Jesus communicates to her, and he says this, verse 21. He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus says, this is, what he, this is what the Father's looking for. He is looking for true worshipers. He is looking for those who will give him all. What does it mean to be a true worshiper or to worship in spirit and truth? What it means is, it means to worship with all of our being. It means to worship with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with everything that is within me. That's what it means to worship in spirit. Can't worship in spirit if you're not born again. Let me say that again. 
You cannot worship in spirit if you're not born again. In other words, you can sing songs all day, but if you have not put your faith in Jesus and repented of your sins, you cannot worship in spirit, period. Hear what I'm saying. You cannot worship him. It's impossible. But to worship him in spirit means to worship him with all of my soul. What does it mean to worship him in truth? It means to worship him according to the truth of God's word. Here's the issue with some, with some Christian folk. This is the thing. The thing is, we want to worship him in spirit. We want to worship him with all of our soul, with all of our heart, with all of everything. But we don't want to look at what the word of God says as to how we are supposed to worship him. What is, what is acceptable in worship. And we just want to have all kind of disorder in our worship services. That is not God. Hello. It is important that we look at what the Bible teaches. And then there is the other issue, because we have two issues. We have the one issue where it is that we want to just get all, you know, fanatical worship. And I'm an issue with being fanatical. Please, I encourage you, be fanatical. Worship him with all of your heart and soul. Let the Holy Spirit move in your life. That's not my issue. My issue is then the other issue is over here. It is that there are others who they just want to worship him according to truth. They, 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 they just want to do whatever, whatever they see, right? They, they just want to do whatever they see here. And, and there's no feeling, no emotion. I see this. I clap my hands and I clap. See, those same folk will be clapping like that in church if they clap at all during a football game. Come on, man. Mm-hmm. During basketball, jumping up, yelling at the TV. Hello. Go, don't, don't take them to a game. Glory to God. Get them in that live place where they wanted to go to that game. Their faith. Man, they're going to be excited, stirred up. They can't do that for Jesus. No, because they worship according to truth. God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. All of our heart, all of our soul, worshiping according to the truth that doesn't change. Here's what you got to get. The reason why worship shouldn't change is because truth doesn't change. The truth never changes. Situations change. Circumstances change. Things happen. Life happens. There are things that occur that would, that, that would cause us, if we are not focused on Christ and what he has done, to limit our worship of God. But here is the reality. If God doesn't change, Jesus said he is the truth, right? So truth doesn't change. It's a person. We are worshiping him. If God does not change, why would the intensity, the frequency, or the liberty in our worship change? There's only one reason. It is because it is not gospel-centered. It is situational. When everything is good, I worship him. It's great. When things get rough, I don't know. Does that mean that I'm going to sing? Listen, I'm going to say this because I want you to get this. When I'm talking about worship, I am not simply, and my next point is going to bring us here. When I'm talking about worship, I'm not talking about singing. I'm not talking about what we do when we come together. That is not the only expression of worship. That is an expression of worship. That is not the only one. That is not the sole expression of worship. Whenever we think about worship, we automatically think, okay, you know what? I'm just singing, clapping, shouting. Listen, you can't sing, clap, and shout when you're at your job. Especially if you work indoors in like a cubicle. Hello. It'd be crazy, right? In your cubicle. Oh, hallelujah. Glory to God. People are like, what's wrong with them? <laughs> Y'all right? Hello? Boss be like, listen, you need to tone that down. Don't be coming with all that hallelujah stuff here. You need to keep this, right? Can't do that. So how do you, how do you worship at work then? Because worship has very little to do with song. When you listen, when you think, when, when you look at your Bible, read, read your Bible. Look up, look up and find the word worship. 
Find the first time you see worship. Look through your Bible and continue on and find out. And look, look how far you have to look before you see worship connected with music. It's a while. It's a while before you get to see that. In the beginning, worship, you know, you know what worship means? Worship means to bow down and prostrate yourself. That's what it means. That's what worship in its most general sense it means. So, okay, well, Bishop, you're saying that I need to bow down and prostrate myself at work? Not physically. In your heart, though. How can you, you, you can't have conversation with folks if you're always singing, shouting, speaking in tongues. It's going to be pretty difficult. They're trying to talk to you, you're like doing your Holy Ghost dance. It's not going to work. All right? When we look at worship, why does it not, why, why, why does it change? It's because it's not centered on Christ. The second point I want to make here, please say this with me. Gospel-centered worship is not a part of our life. It is our life. Compartmentalized worship is not true worship. What do you mean? There's some people, I've heard, I've heard this before, having conversations, musicians, right? I don't have anything against musicians, obviously. Praise the Lord Jesus. Talking about, you know, we mess around, we're out there, but when we come up here, we get serious. Really? So you act a fool out there, you don't live for Jesus out there, and when you get up here, you get serious about Jesus? Really? No. That's compartmentalized worship. Where does that fit into this text here? Look at verse 20 and 24 with me. It said, our fathers, this is what she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, right? And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. We read the other portion of scripture. So what is, G- what, what, is, what is this woman saying to Jesus? She's saying, you guys say we're supposed to worship in one place. We say we're supposed to worship here. So that means that there's no worship in between. There's no worship to. There's no worship from. There's just worship when you get there. There's just worship when you get to that place. And here's the thing. Some of us, when we look at worship as just singing, that's the only time that we think about worshiping God. That is the only time that we think that we are giving God worship. What singing and worship, when, when you're singing in your worship, what you are doing is you are solely, at that moment, focusing your attention, your affection, your song, your emotion and devotion on him, not anybody else. That's what that is. That's why that is a part, a very important part of worship. I don't, I don't, I don't um, you know, belittle that at all. But here's the thing. Outside of that, how do I worship? We were in our covenant couples meeting yesterday, and for those of you that don't know what that is, that is our marriage ministry, and I encourage every couple to make it a point to be there on Saturday mornings. We had an awesome time in the Lord, um, and we were able to share, and as we were sitting down and we were looking at this whole topic of love and respect, and we're looking at what the Bible says to husbands and wives about loving each other and respecting and all of this stuff, as we're looking at that, or as I was sitting down and I was meditating on this, I said, man, that is what gospel-centered marriage is about. I said, because when a husband, and here was the thing, the, one of the questions was this, is, is it right for a wife, and, and, and for some of you that have never heard this, is going to be kind of shocking, so prepare yourself, ladies. Is it right for a woman to give a man, speaking of her husband, unconditional respect? Now, in our society, we know that that's kind of taboo. you got to earn respect, yada, yada, yada. That's not what your Bible says. Your Bible says, wives, respect your husbands, period. Next question was, should a husband unconditionally love his wife. That's more comfortable for us. We're more used to that. But here's the point. The point is, unconditional respect, 
unconditional love, how do, they, how, 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 do you, how do you demonstrate they're unconditional? This is how you demonstrate they're unconditional. When someone acts in a way that doesn't warrant your respect, you still respect them. That's when you show it's unconditional. Explain it again. If I am acting like an idiot, I'm treating my wife harshly, and I'm disrespecting her, and I'm not loving her the way she should be loved, and my wife still decides to treat me in a respectful way, that is unconditional respect because what she is saying to me is, I am going to respect you even though you don't deserve it. You got it? You're with me, right? Why is that powerful in a marriage? Because here's what you're doing. When my wife decides that she is going to unconditionally respect me, even when I don't deserve it, you know what she's saying? She's saying, God, I'm worshiping you and my obedience to your word, even though he doesn't deserve it. And you know what we're getting a picture of? This is what I get a picture of when that happens. I get a picture of the grace of God. I get a picture of the cross of Christ. What do you mean? Because Jesus died on the cross for me, I didn't deserve that. He gave his life for me. He offers me salvation. He draws me out of darkness. That is the grace of God. So in my marriage, when I decide that I'm going to obey, when there are moments, because every woman has a moment, hello. I know no husband wants to say anything because they don't want to get poked, but it's all right. Glory to God. Just like every man has a moment, right? Every woman has a moment. Woman has a moment, I act lovingly toward her. I don't come out and be like, oh, you want to be disrespectful, whatever, and just, you know, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, add insult to injury, and I don't go back and forth. What am I doing? Same exact thing. I am worshiping God in that moment. My obedience, remember, worship is me responding to him. Worship is me responding to him in ways that honor him. How do I, how do I know that I'm honoring God? By obeying his word. Jesus said it clearly. If you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. And so that means in every area. But what we want to do is we want to compartmentalize our worship. So here's what happens. I'm going to be an intense worshiper on Sunday morning. I'm going to come to church, jump, scream, and shout. All week long, I haven't sought God. All week long, I've been living, I haven't been treating my spouse the way I should. All week long, I've been dishonoring my parents. All week long, I've been a shady employee. All week long, I've been doing all of this stuff. And you know what? I haven't been worshiping God all week, but yet I want to call myself a worshiper because I'm louder, I'm more boisterous, I'm more excited, I'm more emotionally expressive than the next person. That makes me a worshiper? No, that makes me a hypocrite. How do you figure, Bishop? Because in the Old Testament, it was the same thing. The people understood. You had to bring these sacrifices. You had to do these things. You had to go to these feasts. You had to go to these. Um, you, you, you had to have a Sabbath day sacrifice and all of these. There were all of these different things that they had to do. And you know what they decided? Hey, man, we're going to make sure we bring the best lamb when we come over here. We're going to make sure we do this. We're going to do that right. And Jesus and God communicates to the prophets. And he's like, hold on a second. You guys approach me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You guys want to come and make all of these extravagant sacrifices, and yet you're not doing justice. You're not doing the right thing. You're not obeying me. So God is saying, listen, worship, compartmentalized worship is not true worship. You can't be a worshiper who worships in spirit and truth if you only worship in song. 
But see, then there's other ways because then there's others of us. We don't really like singing because maybe we don't have a good voice. I don't know. Maybe we don't have that kind of rhythm, you know, whatever. Whatever the case may be, we just don't really like the whole singing portion of worship. And so what we say is, no, you know, I worship God differently. And I'm not telling you that you, you know, need to be screaming and shouting and getting crazy. That's not what I'm saying. Glory to God. What I'm saying is that it is biblical to congregationally sing with other people. That's biblical. That's all I'm saying on that. But here's the point. I don't worship like that. I don't worship when I come to church. You know where I worship? I worship in my good works. I worship in all my do-goody stuff that I do. That's where I worship. So then I don't worship as a spouse, as a son, as a daughter. I don't worship as a parent. Because when I parent my children correctly, that's worship. That's worship. But all the good stuff I do, you know, I, somebody's sick, I, I make soup for them. Hello. Somebody needs something, I do something to meet that need. I, I, I'm a do-gooder, right? So that's why I worship. I'm earning all of these points. No. You're responding to God. Or you know what? I, I worship. This is why I worship God. I don't really need to come to church. I don't really need to do anything like that. I don't really need to do good for anybody else. But where I worship is in my home. I just in my home. I worship in my home. Not that I sing in my home. But I do all the right stuff that a wife is supposed to do. I do all the right things that a husband is supposed to do. Or I do all the right things a child is supposed to do. Or I do all the right thing a parent is supposed to do. All of that is compartmentalized worship. Because all of these things have to come together. Worship needs to be something. It must be continual, meaning that it continues. Worship never stops. I love there's a song um, that Casting Crown sings, and it's called Life Song. And what they're talking about is your life being a song of worship. That's what it's about. It is about my life being a song of worship. It is about my life expressing to God. It is about my life in obedience to him in response to what he's done. And why do I do this? Again, I want you to get this. You are not worshiping God because you are trying to earn something from him. You worship him because of what he's done for you. You're not worship. You're not being a good wife so that way you can feel God's presence. Listen. That is the mindset that some of us have. Well, I'm not going to disobey my parents because I don't want to be under the wrath of God. That's the wrong mindset. Listen, you should fear God, definitely. I love, I heard Mark Driscoll say this, I have to just share this. This is hilarious. He's reading from the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's talking about the last part of Ecclesiastes where the Bible says, fear God. And he says, you know, a lot of different people, they try to argue different things about, you know, what it means to fear God. And he said, you know, people want to say respect and reverence and everything. He's like, yeah, I agree. All of that is true. He says, but God should be feared. What do you mean? There is a wrath that God is pouring, is going to pour out on humanity. You should be afraid of that. And I love the analogy he gives. He said, if I called you in the middle of the night and I said, fear me, and hung up the phone, you'd be like, oh, my goodness. So you can hear God saying that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear me. All right, you got that? Fearing him. Fearing him. Having a true fear, a true reverence for God, that you should have that. But I don't worship him or act obediently because I'm trying to earn something. I worship him and I act obediently because of who he is and what he's done. My worship should be continual. It must be without limit and it must be expressed in all areas of my life at all times. And so what does that mean? That means that there is never a moment that worship is not happening. At 10.30 in the morning on Sundays, at Faith Dome Fellowship and plenty of other places on the planet, worship and praise begins. That's truth. But you know what happens? The moment your alarm clock goes off, 
Worship should start. You should jump out of your bed after you hit the snooze button three times. And say, I'm ready to worship. It's time for worship. It doesn't mean that you're going to go into your room. That's not what I'm saying. It means that I wake up understanding. It's time for worship to start. It's time for me to actively participate in worship. That's what it means. And why? Because I'm trying to earn something? No, man. It's because of what God did for me. It is because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for me. That is why I worship. The third thing, gospel-centered worship. Please repeat that after me. Gospel-centered worship can only be experienced and expressed when our identity is firmly rooted in Christ. Gospel-centered worship can only be experienced and expressed when our identity is firmly rooted in Christ. When we looked at this woman's life, we saw some things about her. We looked at how she had been with five men. They weren't her husband. She was with one now, wasn't her husband. She was coming out to go and get water during a time that was the heat of the day. So she was risking the, 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 the least amount of running into someone else. She was, she was that kind of person. She had some identity issues. She had some problems, and Jesus had to meet her, and that way he could deal with her. The Bible goes on and communicates that Jesus has this conversation with her. He meets her. She shows that she's out there, got, you know, the mindset, things going on inside of her heart, inside of her head. And so then she moves on. They start to have this conversation. Jesus brings up the husband thing. He has that conversation with her. He confronts that. He goes through the whole thing about worship, tells her that he's Messiah, and then we move on. And we see that after he tells her that, verse 27, look at it with me. And verse 27 says this, And at this point his disciples came, and they marveled that he, speaking of Jesus, talked with a woman, yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now I want you to notice the drastic and dramatic change that takes place in this woman's life. This woman has an encounter with Jesus. When she encounters him, he confronts her sin, and she walks away from him. When she came there to that well, she was embarrassed. She was belittled. She felt horrible because of what she had done. She walks away from there, an evangelist. Hallelujah. She walks away from that situation to now go and communicate to the men of the city. Hold on a second. I, I, I don't want to. I, I met the man of mans. Hello. Man of men. Men of men. Whatever. I met him. Glory to God. I met the one, he, ch he changed my life. And I want to come and I want to tell you guys about it. How is that possible? That is only possible because she had something happen inside of her regarding her identity. She said, man, this one, this prophet, he spoke to me. This one who knew all of my past, he was talking to me. He was offering me life. He was offering me this stuff. And so she had a, re a, re a realization. And when she walked away from there, no longer was her identity bound in the five men she was with and the one she was with now. No longer was her, her identity bound in her past or her accomplishments or anything like that. Her identity was bound in who Jesus is that is who it was and she was able freely to go in there and talk to these people you know why she wasn't she wasn't looking at the past anymore 
She met the one that changes the past. She meant the one that forgives the past. She met him. Therefore, we cannot experience and express worship the way we're supposed to until our identity is fully, fully formed in Christ and in Christ alone. In other words, our worship must be motivated by Christ. And our worship must be devoted to him alone, period. Not to anyone else. When our worship is gospel-centered, all other opinions pale in comparison to the opinion of our Savior. When I've been changed, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you say. I don't care about what I'm going to do. I don't care about what I'm doing. I care about one thing, and it is what he did, and I want to live to give him glory. That's what gospel-centered worship looks like. It's not based upon anybody else. I'm not doing it to impress someone. I'm not doing it to make someone think I'm great. I'm not doing it because I want someone to say how wonderful and holy you are or how anointed and powerful you are. I worship him because he is worthy and that is it. I worship him because of what he's done. I obey him, not because I'm trying to undo what my fathers did or I'm trying to outdo what another father does. I worship him as a parent because of what Christ did, and I want to instill that life in my children. I worship God as a husband, not because I'm trying to not be like my father was or because I'm trying to be something that I never saw. I worship as a husband because I am living for the king who died for me. This is what that means to be a worshiper. So what happens is this, is that no one else and nothing else, and when I say nothing else, I mean experiences or accomplishments, whether they are failures or accomplishments, can add to our identity in Christ. We talked about this last week, but I want to drive this point home. When we have truly found our identity in him, people do not define us. Our accomplishments do not define us. Our failures do not define us. Jesus defines us and because he defines us because he is the only one who has power to forgive sin and release you into eternal life. He's the one. And if he says I'm good with him, that's all that matters. Therefore, what do I want? I want my life to reflect that. And what is it to reflect? It's to reflect the savior. It's to reflect his character. That's what worship is about church. Gospel-centered worship is that nothing changes, nothing alters my worship. When Christ is my, when, when Christ is my identity, things, people, they don't alter my worship. They become opportunities for worship. Opportunities, not objects. The difference. When nobody defines me, when nothing defines me, I'm not working my job the way that I am because I'm trying to define myself. I work the way that I work. I'm a diligent employee the way that I work. I'm respectful and I'm honest, not because I'm trying to earn man's approval. It is because I do it all unto the Lord. So I don't worship my job. I worship God through my work. I'm the spouse that I am, the parent that I am. I'm the son or daughter that I am because of what? Because I'm trying to earn someone's approval? No, because I'm trying to bring him glory and honor. I'm closing with this. Gospel-centered worship is a continual revelation or story of the one you love. It is a continual reflection of the one you love. And it is a continual response to the one who loved you first. I'm going to say it again. 
Gospel-centered worship is a continual revelation of the story of the one you love. See, my life, your life, it's a continual story. It's always telling a story about who we're worshiping. That's the bottom line. It's always speaking a story. It tells, it tells a story. I worship success or I worship God. I worship my pain or I worship the Savior. It's always telling a story. We have to get that. It's a continual story. And my hope is that if you know Jesus, that that story continues to show him unto the world. That it continues to speak about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his soon coming return. That it continues to speak to this world about a justification that you have that you didn't earn. That that's what your life story is. That that's what your life communicates in all areas. And listen, let me say this. It's a high standard because it sounds like it's perfection all or nothing. Listen, you know what? God wants all of your heart, but he knows that we are all going to fall short of his glory. And that's why he promises us that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we confess to him. He forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. He doesn't, wait for, he doesn't wait for you to earn your way back into his presence. That isn't what he does. But gospel-centered worship, continual story, continual revelation. The more you get to know him, the more others get to know him through you. That's the goal. It's a continual reflection of his image. That's what it is. When I'm a worshiper, you know how you worship God the best? By reflecting him as best you can. That's how you do it. It's not by your strength, not by your ability. I can't reflect God. I can't be good enough to reflect him. What I can do is obey what he says. Allow him to develop my character. And I will continually reflect him because I love him. Because I love him. And worship is a continual response to the one who loved you first. Listen, the only reason why your life can tell any story is because he loved you first. The only reason that you can reflect his character is because he loved you first. You didn't love him. It wasn't like you loved him enough to then earn his respect. No. He loved you first because you nor I could ever earn that. He loved us. And so the question is this. What are you worshiping? Are you worshiping Jesus? Are you worshiping him for who he is? Are you worshiping him for what he gives to you? Are you worshiping other things that he's given to you? Those are the questions. Are you worshiping him for who he is? Are you worshiping him as one that says, I want to get something from you? Or do you worship the things that he's given you? If the last two depict you, then you need to repent before him. That simply means to acknowledge and I'm not worshiping you just for who you are. I'm worshiping you for stuff. I'm not even worshiping you, man. I'm worshiping the stuff you gave me. So I'll stand to our feet and bow our heads before the Lord.